And the scripture reading today is from Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eli. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right? Okay, good. Last week we spent much of our time exploring some of the themes in Romans chapter 10 where we found Paul insisting, it is not my own ability to be righteous in thought or in deed. It's not my own ability to be righteous that in the end saves me. No, it is the righteousness of God. It is God's activity working to make right everything that has gone wrong. This is the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps in its most whittled down form, that all of humanity, including us, that you and I, we, we are all in rough shape because of sin and can't do anything in our own power to resolve that devastating reality. But when we were powerless and hopeless in our unrighteousness, God's righteousness is powerful in bringing help to the hopeless. The only thing left for us to do, Paul seems to suggest in Romans chapter 10, is to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And Paul says, if you do that, you will be saved. So the question then for us, I think, is, well, is that I want to take the next step in this conversation to consider our role in this. Or do we even have a role? Or do we simply confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and, and conjure up this belief that God raised him from the dead and then we just sit around, bide our time for the age to come? Is the Christian life just a waiting room, as N.T. Wright has asked. And his answer, of course, is objectively, well, absolutely not. It is a very active life in which we are pursuing something intentionally. So, yes, we respond to what God has done. We also, though, participate in what God is continuing to do in our world. So the Christian faith is a much more robust calling than just a waiting room where we sit on our hands awaiting our names to be called. It is a much more robust calling than a single 
prayer may be said at an altar or an isolated moment of conversion. The early church apostolic father, Ignatius of Antioch, so not to be confused with Ignatius of Loyola, who was the 16th century Spanish priest who uh, is famously known for his spiritual exercises and the prayer of examine, which we've talked about in the past, and we're actually going to uh, conclude our time there today. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, though, lived many moons before Ignatius of Loyola. In fact, tradition holds that Ignatius of Antioch was a direct disciple of John the Beloved, one of the 12 disciples. Historically, we don't know for sure if that was the case. Um, And to be honest, we don't know much about his life at all, save what he wrote in some letters to various churches as he was traveling to Rome to ultimately face execution. But suffice it to say, he was a very early church leader, and one of the things he wrote was this. He said, it is right, therefore, that we not just be called Christians, but that we actually be Christians. The faith is not just a label that we slap onto our chests and then sit in the waiting room, awaiting Christ's return. No, it is an active life we have been called into. Now, keep in mind, this is coming from a man who was ultimately martyred for his faith. And he says it's important that we not just be called Christians for the benefits it brings to us or for the salvation we experience in the age to come. It's important that we actually live as Christians are to live, that we would become like Jesus Christ. So I want to explore this tension as we look at our text from the epistles today in Philippians chapter 3. Just before the section we are going to read today, we find Paul, and we alluded to this text last week, we find Paul saying, I don't have a righteousness of my own. And he lists some of his honors. And after listing those honors, he says, the reality is my honors, my accolades, those achievements, they actually don't accomplish anything for me in the end. Not that they're meaningless or unhelpful. They can actually be very good, but they're not effective in producing anything ultimately that leads to my salvation. Because he says, despite how good some of this may look on my resume, it is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not interested in my own ability to be righteous, but the righteousness of God that comes through faith. That's all I want. I want to know Christ. He says, I want to share in his sufferings, even in his death, that I might experience resurrection. So this is Paul's goal, his only desire. He can't accomplish his salvation. It's not his righteousness, but the righteousness of God. But he goes on to explain later in this chapter, there is still much to be done. So I want to dig into verses 12 through 16 today. Next week, we will pick it up in verse 17. Let me read these five verses, and then we'll explore it in a bit more detail. 
Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's impossible, or at the very least very difficult, to read these five verses from Philippians and reach the conclusion that after our baptism, well, there is nothing substantial to do. There's nothing left for us to do except to wait for Christ to return and set this world right. Although we do believe Christ will return and ultimately set this world right, and we await that return with great hope and expectation, but putting faith, as Paul says in Romans 10, in the righteousness of God, putting faith in the righteousness of God is not the conclusion, but the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of formation. Paul says, I don't put confidence in my ability to be righteous or to achieve salvation. I rely only on the righteousness of God, but apparently that doesn't relieve him of all responsibility or action in this life. He is still on a journey. Look at the language he uses in Philippians. Striving, pressing on. It's packed full of action. I like the analogy that James K.A. Smith uses that I think provides a helpful framework to, to navigate some of this tension. He said that conversion is not an arrival at our final destination. It's the acquisition of a compass. It's not the arrival. Even if we think of the arrival of, of, at a destination as a waiting room, that's not what conversion is. We are still on this journey moving forward. I like that image of the compass because I think it points out a, a couple of uh, really important realities uh, associated with the life of faith. On one hand, it is a reminder that I can't do it on my own. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week as we get to verse 17 and talk about the importance of our interpersonal relationships in our journey with Jesus, that we can't do it without one another. But if we back out a bit, generally speaking, if I am responsible in any way for arriving at the end in my own strength and determination with my own skill set, I might as well throw in the towel now. I I cannot do it on my own, in my own strength, my own faithfulness. A critical component of Christian faith is that our, our faith is not a faith in our own ability to be faithful. Our faith is in God alone and his faithfulness to us. 
You know, I, I really love to hike. I, I've done a, a fair amount of it in quite a few states around the country. And fortunately, to this point anyway, I don't want to tempt fate, but fortunately to this point, though I've had a few concerning moments, you know, maybe on a mountain where a storm rolls in and those thick clouds can be fairly disorienting, despite some of those uh, concerning moments, I've never genuinely been lost on a hike. Again, don't want to tempt fate. Hopefully it stays that way. But as a mental exercise, I can imagine what it would be like and how different it would be to be lost in the woods or on a mountain with no tools of orientation, with no compass, no clearly defined trail system, no map. It's a very different thing to be lost, but to have some of those tools that help orient you to your surroundings. If I am lost on a mountain and I have none of those tools of orientation, the journey may not be successful. And yet I think this image also brings up another important fact that even with some of those important tools, at some point those tools are not going to carry me to the destination. They are helpful in orienting me. They're, they are helpful in becoming aware of my surroundings, but they ultimately I have to begin to read the map. I have to follow that clearly defined trail system, so on and so forth. I think the latter half of Philippians 3 emphasizes this, that it is packed full of action, and it's action that is actually important. Action that makes a genuine difference in our lives in some way. This is what we read in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This life is not a waiting room. Instead, Paul uses an image that he uses elsewhere. Here it's fairly vague. It's not nearly as explicit as it is in some of his other writings, but it's the image of a, a, maybe a race or some other athletic competition comparing the Christian life to this active endeavor that involves straining and striving and pressing on, keeping the goal in our mind. Verses 12 and 13, the process begins with active living in the here and now, not just waiting. Following Jesus requires intentional living that begins with, according to Paul here, some mental self-reflection or an honest assessment. Where am I now? I have not arrived. And then also a clear description of the goal. This is where I hope to be. I'm not there now, so what do I need to do in the present? What posture do I need to assume today that will ensure that I get to the goal? Because I recognize arriving at the goal that I am striving for is not just going to happen. Aristotle, the, the Greek philosopher who lived several hundred years before Jesus, taught that as humans, one of the primary ways we attain happiness is through the development of strengths of character or the development of virtues. And, and we develop those strengths of character. We 
acquire virtues through practice, and then that equips us to become the people we hope to become. We're not going to arrive at that place without some intentional work being done today to develop those virtues. Paul seems to use a similar line of argument here, although his goal is perhaps a bit unique. What is Paul after? The goal for humanity is to be fully or genuinely human, to live a fully human life in the here and now, to be transformed into the image of Christ. But that requires that we are growing constantly moving forward in this journey into maturity. And Paul says, look, this is my goal, and I'm not going to leave that to chance. I am taking responsibility to at least put myself in a position to move in that direction. I understand that I cannot create this on my own, but that doesn't mean there's nothing that I can do in this moment. So one of the principles we seem to find here is that Without identifying what the ultimate goal in our lives is, which for Paul seems to be flourishing or growing into maturity, without identifying that and then gauging this present moment and every pursuit in my life against that goal or running every pursuit through the filter of that ultimate goal, I am never going to arrive at that place. I mean, we could think, for the sake of simplicity, of a goal like happiness. I think we all understand that there are many activities and pursuits that we could engage in that might bring momentary happiness or pleasure. But if we can step back and look at them objectively, we understand that ultimately, maybe that activity, though it brings momentary pleasure is going to lead to my destruction or the destruction of those around me, or it is going to steal the deep joy that I'm after. The idea that momentary happiness can actually steal deep joy. And if I haven't carefully thought through what the goal is and where I am now, I won't have the determination to forego the momentary pleasure for the sake of that deep joy. Similarly, without practice in the way of Jesus, without practice today in the way of Jesus, we don't become like Christ. So Paul says, I haven't obtained it, but I press on to make the goal my own. And I can be assured that that's going to happen, not because of my own strength or ability, but ultimately because Christ has already made me his own. I'm not helping myself so that God will see fit to stoop down and help me. It's impossible for me to do this on my own. All of life is grace. All of salvation is grace. Paul says, I'm powerless to make it my own, So this is the tension we're finding here, right? But there is something I can do. I'm not just left to wait out the storm until my name is called. Although I'm sure that we can all identify with the unadulterated joy and relief that rushes over you if you're sitting in a waiting room and finally hear your name called. 
right? That's my name. I'll see you suckers later. (laughs) Have you been there? That's not the Christian life. The Christian faith entails much more. Paul says, I haven't made it my own, but verse 13, one thing I do. So it's an acknowledgement. There's a lot that I am powerless to do, but I can do this. I can put myself in a position through practices and habits to continue growing into maturity, to be transformed into the image of Christ. I can put myself in a position today to live a genuinely human life in the here and now with Christ as my model. So we we started with Ignatius of Antioch, fast forwarding to Ignatius of Loyola. I think this is where a practice like the prayer of examine from Ignatian spirituality can be a really critical practice for us to engage in as we seek to prayerfully review the day that has just passed, where I work through mentally each moment in that day, each hour, and I look for God's activity. I look for God's presence in ways in which I didn't notice it when I was in the midst of all of the cares and concerns of the day. And I I look back through the day and, and ask God to highlight ways in which I missed the mark and moments where there was need for correction. The point is not to dwell on my failure, but to accept Christ's invitation into deeper faithfulness, not despair over my past mistakes, but acknowledging that where I am today is not where I hope to be in the end. There is room for improvement. Paul says, one thing I can do, forgetting what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When we come to faith in Christ, our focus, our perspective shifts. There is this new ultimate goal in our lives. And so we put the past behind us to strain for that goal to receive the prize that awaits. But without keeping our eyes locked on that prize, without keeping the goal in our minds, in all likelihood, we are going to end up somewhere else. If you've spent much time around young children, you've probably seen this principle at play on a routine basis in the all-time crowd favorite, a game of chase, right? Our girls, like many children, love a good game of chase. The problem is they're so excited and so frightened. It's really an excited fright, I think. They're so excited and so frightened about being caught that they're running but constantly looking back over their shoulder. And you know how that inevitably ends up right? They end up running directly into a wall or a cabinet or a piece of furniture or a door. Basically, our kids have run into every object in our house. In fact, just yesterday, we moved a piece of furniture 
and we put this piece of furniture directly in this path that they're constantly running circles around, both of our girls ran directly into that new piece of furniture because they were looking behind them and didn't expect it to be there. The, the point is that to get where we want to go, we have to keep our eyes focused on the prize. Otherwise, and this has been true in my experience, we become distracted. Whether by enticements of life or the loves of our past that continue to have great allure, but we recognize they aren't conducive in helping us get to where we want to go. When Paul says forgetting what is in the past, I, I don't think he's intending to communicate that the past doesn't matter at all. No, the past is a part of our human experience. It's a part of our lives, and it's always something that we can look back to and, and learn from. We can look back to positive moments and gain strength and encouragement for what lies ahead, or we can look back to negative moments in the past and maybe find points of correction. The I don't think Paul is arguing for some spiritual form of the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where God is just wiping out all of our negative memories and, and we have no access to them anymore. No, we, we forget about the past in this way. We are forgetting maybe our previous goals or aspirations or obsessions that defined our lives before we encountered Jesus because Encountering Christ changes it all. Some of our goals and aspirations may remain. Maybe they are good, and that's fine, but we are always willing to relinquish them if called to do so. However strong the allure might be, because we have a new goal, and that new goal defines everything for us in this present moment. We, we run every pursuit through the filter of that ultimate goal. So going back to what we talked about last week, Paul's invitation in Romans, confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. And as we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and accept our identity in him, so this is how I'm hoping to connect these points. Right living in this moment is not a means of achieving or attaining or grasping our salvation, but as we accept the lordship of Christ, which, which places on us a particular way of living life, but it is a way of life that is liberating us to become genuinely human, to live like him. Our right living in this moment is not something we do to earn his love as though we ever could earn his love. It's not something we do to attain our salvation. No, our right living in this moment is not an obligation or a burden. It is a joy that is an expression of the life and salvation we have already received because of nothing we have done. It's not a means of attaining joy. It's an expression of that joy. Jesus is the righteousness of God who is present in us and with us. And as we run, 
as we strive for the goal, as we journey this life of faith. We take comfort and we find confidence in the fact that Christ has already made us his own. Fleming Rutledge put it this way, talking about right living in this moment. She said, if the motivation is behave yourself or earn this, you will be able to act only out of compulsion, guilt, or insecurity. That's the difference, she said, between the bad news and the good news. It is not what we are doing in order to achieve salvation. It is a response to the grace we have freely received and a response to an acknowledgement that Christ is our Lord. So we walk this out. We're not just waiting. We are living in a particular way. We are living in accordance with the things we are learning, keeping our eyes open, knowing that we live in this already not yet tension of the kingdom. There is much room for growth. And so we press on. We stay focused on Jesus Christ alone, leaving the enticements of the world behind. We continue to journey. And you know, I think this meal that we are gathering around today, this is the, the way we conclude each of our Sunday gatherings, and I think it's the only way to appropriately conclude, um, especially in this conversation. As our minds are taken to Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, especially during Lent, as we are figuratively journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem, to his cross, it is a reminder that we are freely receiving the gift of grace, something that we could never do on our own, but the receipt of that gift calls us into a particular way of life. We also acknowledge in this meal that it's a long journey which is why we gather again around this table week after week after week. I don't know about you, but I need the nourishment in this meal. I need the reminder that this meal is providing, a reminder about the life that I have been called into. You know, Robbie Waddell, who pastors a church in Florida and teaches at Southeastern University, he put it this way. He said, the way of Jesus is often the long game rather than an immediate transformation. He said, I receive the Eucharist weekly, not because it magically changes me, but because after decades I can look back and see mystically or spiritually the change that has been wrought in me. And so today the invitation is to come to the table of our Lord, to receive the nourishment for the journey ahead, to receive the strength, understanding that you can't do it in your own power. I'd invite you to stand. I want to pray this prayer of humble access for us by way of invitation. And after I do so, we'll invite you to the table of our Lord. We'll make two lines down these two center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. Let, let me say a prayer for us.
Father, we thank you for this meal. As we have acknowledged today that as we submit to your lordship and, and accept that call into a particular way of living, we are encouraged to know we're not doing this on our own. That it's only possible because you have already made us your own. That you are walking with us. That you are strengthening us for the task ahead. And so we receive your nourishment. And we pray we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?